Well, I invite you guys, if you have your Bibles with you, to open up to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to take a look at uh, this morning. And as we take a look, I guess one of the things, especially when we sing that, that last song that we just sang, one of the things that I think every one of us is going to have to come to the place where we're willing to answer this specific question, and that is, are you willing to stand for Jesus? Are you willing to stand for Him? When, uh, when it's all on the line, when everybody's watching, when everybody's looking, will you stand? There was a, a time when, uh, when I was going, I was teaching youth group, was a youth pastor for several years, and, and as I was doing youth, I remember that was one of the real uh, cornerstones to... So the things that I taught and the way that I tried to lead the kids is we're called to make a stand. And you get to make that stand every day. Amen. And the question is, often for us, will we stand or sometimes it's will I stand next time? Or am I willing the next time? And it's a challenge that we all face. As we look at Matthew chapter 5, we're coming into... One of the five discourses that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe many of us are familiar with it uh, already, the teachings of of Jesus. As he gives to them, really, I mean, when we look at the book of Matthew, understand, Matthew's written from a Jewish perspective. It's written to Jewish people to pronounce to them, Jesus Christ is their king. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to tell them, His manifesto for the kingdom. He's going to call us to some pretty difficult things. For example, he's going to tell us to be perfect. Anybody attained to that recently? He's calling us to some some pretty, make some pretty powerful statements in regard to our relationship with God and our relationship to one another. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and when we look at it, the challenge for us as we look at that is, is we can allow the fact that we fall short to condemn us or rip us off. Last I checked, the Bible says we all fall short, right? Yes. Or we can allow the Spirit to do a work of conviction in our life and say, yeah, you know what, I just need to make sure I'm headed in that direction. Sometimes we get so burnt on, the, on living the Christian life and trying maybe in our own strength to be what we think God wants us to be or maybe we're trying to be what we think other people want us to be and we, get, we can get burnt trying to do that, trying to be that because we're trying to do it in our own strength. And the Word of God calls us to recognize that we never had the strength to do it in the first place. That's why Jesus went to the cross. If you and I could have done it, He wouldn't have had to do that. But he went to the cross to provide you and I two things, the covering and the power. The covering for when we fail and the power to succeed. He became sin that we might become right with God. And he came to give unto us the comforter. John told us when we were looking at the book of Matthew, we read uh, Matthew chapter 3. John said, 
There is one among you whose sandals I'm not even worthy to loose, and he will do what? Baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll give you the power to be more than you are. But that power comes only from my relationship with Him. My drawing close to Him. My surrendering all the the head trips that I might go on in regard to performance. Surrendering all that to the Lord and saying, here's what God is calling me to. The Lord never draws for you and I a line in the sand and says, if you step over that line, you're saved. He never says... Pray this prayer. He never says do this thing. He lays out for us throughout Scripture the concept of confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart. He he lays out for us this ideal of, of what it means to have a relationship with Him, but He doesn't draw it in the sand. And so often in our lives, guys, we want to know, can I still do this and be saved? Can I still do that and be saved? How close to the edge can I stand and not fall into not being saved. Where is that line specifically in life? But here's what God gives us. He gives us a starting line and a finish line. The starting line begins on the day that we surrender our life to Him. And on that day in history, you draw a line and you say, that's the start. And from that day forward, I'm going toward Him. If I'm not moving toward him, I'm falling behind, I'm falling back. Uh, we call that being backslidden. His desire for you and I is that we are consistently, completely, totally moving toward him. Jesus wants us to reach to him. You know when we sing praise songs, many times we'll, we'll raise our hands up to the heavens. It's, it's symbolism. The psalmist declared over and over again, I lift my hands. I lift my hands to the Lord. What's he saying? Pick me up. Pick me up. But sometimes we'll lift one hand to the Lord and with the other hand we're holding on to the world. God can't pick you up that way. The Lord declared, you can't serve two masters, one or the other. Which is it going to be? Will you stand? Will you stand up on that day And say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ who is not perfect. And I fail nearly every day. But I thank God that His mercy is new every day. And His call to me is that the practice of my life is to move in His direction. I'm going toward Him. And one day, the things we read this morning, one day, that's going to be the condition When Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king. But until then, it doesn't absolve me of looking at these and saying, I can't. Anybody can quit. Any dead fish can swim downstream, right? (laughs) Quitting is easy. Way too easy. What does God call us to? He calls us to walk from victory. A victory that's already been purchased and won. So he says, hey, lay down the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares you. Stop hanging on to the world with one hand and trying to hang on to me with the other. Reach both arms up to me and it's you and me till the wheels fall off. 
That's what God wants. His, his call to us is simple, guys. In Deuteronomy, he makes it so simple. He calls us and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can all say, you know, I want to do that. I try to do that. Maybe we fall short in it a variety of times. Here's the question. Are you moving toward that? Is that your goal? I want to love God more. I want to love him more today. I want to love him more tomorrow. I'm moving toward him. Or is it just another thought, you know, that comes around on Sundays? Is it just another thing that, that, that is working in our mind? We want to come to the place where, man, that's it. That's why we're here. To love God. To surrender to Him. To, to enjoy the victory that Jesus Christ wrought for us at the cross. And as He comes to Matthew chapter 5... If we look back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, it says, And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth and taught them. So all the multitude is coming. We're going to read in a, in a few chapters. We won't read it today. It's going to take us a while. 16 verses. Don't panic. I don't, I'm not going to do all 48. <clears throat> when we come to, but we're going to come to a section of Scripture where the Lord says that he saw the multitude and was moved by compassion. The scripture lays out for us that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The scripture lays out for us we're condemned already. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are absolutely, totally, completely lost. So as we surrender our life to him, may we surrender that life and not try to hold on to it. Jesus said, Anyone who loses his life finds it in him. But if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. You ever try to hold on to water? You get, you're really thirsty, you know, and you find that, that crystal clear stream, and you stick your hands down in the stream, and you lift up that water, and you, can you hold it for five or ten minutes? A minute? Man, the whole time it's in your hand, what's it doing? Falling out. Jesus said, if you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. you got to let it go. you got to let it go. Give it to God. That's when you're going to find it. That's when you find your purpose. That's when you find true and lasting joy. And that's what chapter 5 is all about. That's what his Sermon on the Mount is. You want to know how to be content? You want to know how to experience joy? You want to know all that? Then it's living a life and utter surrender to God. Total and complete abandon to Jesus Christ. A man wrote this. If you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists... On the subject of mental hygiene. And if you were to combine them and refine them and and cleave out all the excess verbiage. If you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets. 
you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ lays out for us that outline of experiencing that incredible and abundant life that that we can have, that we can find in Him. And the frustrating part for you and I is we're always going to fall short of it. But it doesn't mean God doesn't want us to be moving in that direction. Toward Jesus Christ. Here's a question to ask yourself in your relationship with the Lord. And that question is daily, moment by moment. Am I moving toward Jesus? If I'm not, what are you doing? Why not? Why hold on to all that other junk? It's just going to weigh us down and hold us back and it's going to rip us off of our joy. I want to lay that stuff aside and I want to experience the greatest of all teaching that ever has been. Everyone agrees. Nobody argues the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is the highest pinnacle of ethical teaching. It's it. But Jesus meant for it to be more than just words on a page or something that people say, wow, that is an incredible idea. He laid it out for us that you and I would be laying hold of it. Because as we look at this, as we look at these next 14 verses, what we see in that is that you and I can't put our names on it yet, but we know Jesus Christ can. That He fulfills every one of those things. That He that He's able to be abundantly above and beyond anything we can imagine. He's able to fulfill all of that stuff. And you and I who say we abide in him ought also what? To walk as he walked, right? So I want to be moving toward that. I want to stop making excuses that, you know, that's just for the crazy guy who's too sold out or the nutcase who's, you know, that's, that's not it. It is, am I, with every step I take, moving toward the Lord? Or am I making excuses for why I shouldn't? And when we think about that, I want you to ask yourself again, that last song we sang. It's easy to say the words, I'll stand. That's a whole nother thing to do it. This last week, I was at the pastor's conference, and I heard some pretty incredible uh, um, missions, outreaches that people are doing. Some pretty awesome ones, and and I'll, I'll share them you know, as as we go on through the through this upcoming year and opportunities that we have within it. But one of them that really left out to me is a man who goes over and he trains the Sudanese. The Sudanese have a, an army that, that is pretty weak. And anytime the Muslims come against the Sudanese army, the men run and the women and children are slaughtered. Over and over and over again. This guy felt the call of God to go over there and he trains the Sudanese, and it's a chaplain's corps. And this chaplain's corps that he trains, that he prepares for the things that they face, he teaches them to do one thing, stand. He says, though everyone else run, you stand. And you protect the women and the children. This is the slaughter of the Christians by the Muslims in Sudan been going on for years 
He trains these men to stand. To have the courage when all that stuff is going on around them, where do they find that courage? They don't find it within themselves. They don't find it because they're so great and so wonderful. They find it because they live a life totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you'll come after me, you must deny yourself. What's he saying? You're dead already. So what can man do to you? I'm already dead to this world. This place isn't my home. I'm alive in Christ Jesus. So while he's sharing this with us, he, he gets noticed actually just prior to him coming up that the, the Sudanese army had come against this, the, the area where the Christians were and the chaplain corps was out fighting. They have a name for the chaplain corps. The, the, the Muslim fighters, they called the chaplain corps um, the warriors... Warriors of the lion, something like that. Warriors of the lion or lion warriors. And they say that they're not like everybody else. They won't run. You have to kill them. So while he's sharing with us this mission that he does in the Sudan, the guys he trains were fighting. Running out of ammo. Facing an army way bigger than they are. But they had set in their minds, we will stand. Though he slay me, I will serve him. Folks, that's commitment. That's commitment. That's that's being sold out. You and I, and I'm not trying to put this down, you and I, we can sing the song. Can we fulfill that, the purpose of that song, which is, I stand. I'll stand for Jesus Christ wherever I'm at. Can I stand for Jesus Christ at my work? Can I stand for Jesus Christ in, 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 in the things that I do, the recreation, the fun, all that stuff? Can I, can, I, can I, in everything I do, be moving toward the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely can. But I have to make that decision. For God's calling us to that kind of a commitment. He's calling us to let go of everything else and and totally give ourselves to Him. That's it. The scripture lays out for us that when the multitude came around Him, that He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He taught them. That word taught, it means a continuous action. That means the Sermon on the Mount was not just something he shared with them once. You're going you're to get bits and pieces of, of this sermon. Probably Matthew gives us the most concise version. Luke talks about it. And he, and he describes the Sermon on the Mount in Luke as be, occurring in a different place. Why? Because this was a teaching that Jesus would give over and over and over again. He'd stop and he'd begin to teach. And he'd tell them about this journey and what righteousness really is all about. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean? What is true righteousness? Hey, that's what he's talking about in verse 1 through 16. What is true righteousness? And in that description, he's going to tell us several things about ourselves. He's going to say, what is is our attitude toward ourselves? 
supposed to look like? He's going to tell us what is our attitude toward our sin supposed to be? He's going to tell us what is our attitude supposed to be toward the Lord? And what is our attitude supposed to be toward the world? To walk in righteousness. To walk in a right relationship with God. To go after him with both hands. To lay hold to all that he has for us. So he opens up his mouth and he begins. He he teaches them, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, blessed will be. He doesn't say, one day, if you endure, you will be blessed. He says, you're blessed right now. Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And everlasting life begins at that moment. That moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, everlasting life has already begun. You don't have to wait somewhere for that to happen. You're in it right then. So get in it. Dive in. Go after him with everything. Go after him with all that you have. Lay both hands upon the Lord. The day when I see Jesus' face, I don't want to be looking behind me to see what else is going on. I want to go after him. I want to I want to hold him. I want to I want to know him. I it's about him. It's not about anything else I can have. It's not about healing, it's not about food, it's not about his supplying my needs. It's about him. Jesus. I want Jesus. I want him with everything. I want to stand for him. So he says, "Blessed are already blessed are the poor in spirit." Now, in the, in the Greek, there are two words for the word poor. There's one that speaks of the working poor, and there's one that speaks of the, the, the absolute poor. Poor in every way. Poor, so poor they can't help themselves. That's the word used here. Absolute, complete, utter poor. Not the working poor. Completely, utterly, totally poor. I want you to think about who Jesus went to. He didn't come and talk to the religious. He didn't come talk to the self-righteous. He didn't come talk to the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And if you and I were there, we would have said, the holiest people on the planet are those guys. But Jesus is going to say in these next three chapters, unless your righteousness exceed that, of the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And they would look and think, man, these guys are the the pinnacle. That's the holiest you can be. But who did Jesus go to? He went to the poor, to the publican, to the prostitute, to the sinner. Why? Because they knew themselves to be poor in spirit. That I have nothing I can do but cry out to God for mercy. You remember when Jesus talked about two guys going to pray. 
One Pharisee, he goes to pray and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a, a woman or a Gentile or like this sinner, this tax collector over here, but that I am a, a relatively holy guy, you know. Uh, I'm doing okay, God, thanks. The other guy couldn't hardly say anything. He beat his, his chest and he declared himself to be a, a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm just a sinner. Jesus said, that man left justified. The one who proclaims his righteousness, that he's okay, that what he does is good enough, that he's got enough of the Lord, enough of the relationship with the Lord, he doesn't know himself to be poor in spirit. The the word says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They recognize, I have nothing to give. There's nothing within me that says, here's what I got, God. You know, Lord, when you got me, I have this thing. I'm going to give this thing to you because this is what I have. The poor in spirit recognize they have nothing. And what does this word blessed mean? Listen, the word blessed means to have or to experience this unending, disquieted joy. Utter, complete joy, despite your circumstances. That word for blessed. It means to have everything, to experience everything that the Lord God has for you. It's, it's untouchable, self-contained. It's not going to ebb and flow. That joy, that happiness, he says, is already with the poor in spirit. Because they know they're a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I know the thoughts I think. I know the things I do. I know the garbage that's inside of me. But the Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is already theirs. The truly, utterly poor in spirit already have the kingdom of heaven because that's the people Jesus went to. Right? What did they say about him? Oh, he just... Always hanging out with them dirty sinners. Those people who are unrighteous, that are that don't live life right. Jesus said, I've come to call the unrighteous to repentance. And so that's who he went to. And they can enter into that perfect relationship. What are we talking about? The right attitude toward myself. These are the be attitudes, the attitude I'm supposed to be, not the attitude I'm supposed to do. It's the attitude I'm supposed to be. The be attitude that he lays out for me, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he goes on in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This concept of mourn is not just uh, those who are sad. This is, this is total abject, weeping, mourning, utterly broken, wholly and completely broken over something. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Because as we look at this section, he's talking about now our attitude towards sin. Blessed are those who mourn, who have this total, utter, complete brokenheartedness at their sin, who aren't justifying it. Who aren't saying, well, that's all right. Everybody does that. 
They recognize every little sin, guys, every peace, everything we, we do in moving away from Jesus Christ. That's sin. Sin simply means to miss the mark. If I'm moving in the direction of the Lord, I'm good to go. If I'm going any other direction, <coughs> I'm in sin. Blessed are, oh, how happy are those people who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. What did Isaiah 61 say? That the Messiah came to heal the brokenhearted. To give comfort to those who mourn. Those who understand the wretched state. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm, I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry. I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for what my sin does. What sin has accomplished in the world. So I mourn over that. My heart is, is broken. The scripture lays out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Blessed are those who mourn. The whole picture that he's painting is that attitude of repentance. I'm broke. I'm broken for my sin. I'm broken from the cause of my sin. Then the scripture goes on then in this attitude that we should have toward our sin. He goes on in verse 5. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. That word meek, you've heard this probably many times. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness was a word in the Greek that can't even be translated by a single English word. It's got to be translated by a phrase. The concept is that word was utilized of a wild stallion that had been broken and that broken wild stallion then would obey his master so the power of that wild stallion was now in the hands of the one who controlled him that is meek power under control but it's not power under your control it's not your personal control over your power it is the fact that your life is under the control of the master. The question is, which master is your life under control to? If I'm moving in the direction of Jesus Christ, if I'm walking toward him, my, the power of my life, the, the things that, that make up my ability to do anything, are they in the hands of Jesus Christ? If I present myself to him, as a tool of righteousness for God to use. That's meekness. That I belong to him. If he wants to use that as a wrench, if I'm a pair of pliers, or if I'm a hammer, it doesn't make any difference. I am a tool in the master's hand. But if I'm moving in another direction, I'm moving away from the Lord, I'm doing my own thing, then where, who is in control of my life? Me? Am I the one in control? Then you're not meek. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the planet. That he was the meekest human being. Why? Because he was so gentle and nice and always did everything right? No, because he was consistently listening for the voice of God and obeying what God called him to do. If 
If God wanted them to move to the left, they moved to the left. He wanted them to move to the right, he moved to the right. Wanted them to camp here, they camped there. He was always under God's control. Listen, who control who pulls your strings? I pull my own strings. And you're not meek. To be meek means I have God. I surrender myself to Him. He pulls my strings. I am under His control. To do with, to take to whatever place He needs to take me to. To do whatever He needs to do. And maybe that means I enjoy prosperity. Praise the Lord. The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Maybe he takes me to a place of humiliation. The Bible says to mourn with those who mourn. Either way, it's under God's direction. I'm submitted to him and allowing him to guide and to lead. And I want to recognize that the reason that I'm living the life that I'm living is for the eternal perspective. I'm not trying to get everything I can get now. The guy with the most toys doesn't have nothing but a lot of bills. I'm not living this life for what I can have here. And I don't get to take nothing with me. But in Matthew chapter 6, the scripture says to lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. So the way I live my life affects the way I spend eternity. Not where I spend eternity. The way. How will I spend eternity? Am I willing to understand that Jesus said, Oh, how happy it is incredible contentment and joy that is found in a life of meekness or laying the power of their life under the control of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the kingdom or they will inherit the earth. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, we're looking at our attitude towards sin. What are you hungry for? What is that thing within you that drives you? That thing that says, you know, this is, this is my purpose in life. Because the scripture is very clear. In the United States, maybe we don't really understand this very well. The idea of hungering and thirsting for something. That that is your motivation. You want to know where you're at. Where am I at in this relationship with the Lord? In in my attitude that says, I, I want to commit my life completely to Him. You want to know where you're at? Then ask yourself, what is it that you're hungry for? You hungry for a life of sin? Debauchery? You're hungry for all those things that lead away from the Lord Jesus Christ? I'd be a little bit worried. Let me scratch that. I'd be a lot worried. But if I'm hungry for the things of God, oh, how happy, oh, how blessed, oh, how that contentment and joy that is found in a life that is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. For being right before God. Is that my motivation? Is that the hunger of my life? As Jesus lays this out for us, this is that call that he is making to us. He's saying, oh, what is it that I want? What is it that I desire? 
What is the desire of someone who is a poor in spirit, who is mourning over their sin, who lives a life of meekness? Their desire, their hunger is righteousness. C.H. Spurgeon had this to say, Alas, says he, it is not enough for me to know that my sin is forgiven. I have a fountain of sin within my heart, and bitter waters continually flow from it. Oh, that my nature could be changed, so that I, the lover of sin, could be made the lover of that which is good, that I, now full of evil, could become full of holiness. Hey, maybe we never attain the total hunger and thirst for righteousness. But what direction are you headed in? Is that the direction we're moving? Guys, John would write to us in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And really in 1st John, he tells us how we can know that we're saved. How can we know that we have eternal life? And what he tells us is if you practice sin, you're not his. Then say, if you sin, you're not his. He said, if you practice sin, it's a life of habitual sin. That means that the word of God very clearly lays out for us something we understand. This is a sin. And then the practice of my life, the direction of my life is to walk toward that sin. And the Lord says, you're not mine. You don't recognize that you're poor in spirit. You're not mourning over your sin. You're not living a life of meekness and you're hungry for that which I've told you will destroy you. The Lord says, that's not mine. But if you practice righteousness, it doesn't mean that I am perfect in being righteous. It means, is that the direction of my life? In other words, when I'm moving this way and I stumble and fall and I sin and I mess up and I do something wrong, do I make an excuse? Do I say it's not such a big deal? Oh, this is close enough to what God wants. Or do I repent? Do I confess my sin to the Lord? I ask for forgiveness, get back up and continue moving toward him. Now I have a life practicing righteousness. Or I have a life practicing sin which way am i going to go he calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness that our motivation would be for the things of god and what does he promise for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be filled you know what that means that is that feeling you have thanksgiving You know, when you wear the elastic pants, you come up to the table with the belt loosened and the top button already done, and you sit down and you say, I am going to feast. And you just shovel it in that food as fast as you can get it in. Turkey, gravy and potatoes, and stuffing, no cranberries. (laughs) And you're shoveling that stuff in. And then there comes a point where you just can't get another bite down. And you sit back and you go, "Ah, it's time for a nap. (laughs) He says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, 
They go after the Lord that way. They will be filled. They'll be filled. If I'm not filled, I'm not happy, I'm not understanding this deeper relationship with the Lord, perhaps the hunger of my life is something else. And what am I saying? Do I say that to condemn you, to make you feel bad? No, I say that to say, repent. What's the big deal? Repent. Don't make an excuse, just repent. You know what, Lord? I'm not right. Help me. Listen, God knows we're not able. The Bible doesn't tell us over and again that I am able. The Bible tells over and over again that he is able. That God is able to establish me, to to give me all those things that I need. He is able. I just got to put my faith, hope, trust, everything in him. And allow God to do that incredible work that he wants to do in our life. Blessed, oh how happy are those whose hunger, whose motivation, whose thirst is for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Now in verse 7, it's our, our attitude toward the Lord. How is this our attitude toward the Lord? Oh how happy are the merciful, for they have obtained mercy. The Lord said that there are two men that owed a great sum of money. The one man, he was, he was brought before the king, and, and the king said to him, You owe me a million dollars. And the guy said, I can't pay. Please have mercy on me. And the king was moved by compassion, and he said, All right, debt's forgiven. And that guy left, and he went down the street, and he found another guy who owed him 20 bucks. And he laid hands on him, and he beat him, and he screamed at him, and he said, you need to pay me. And the guy said, oh, have mercy on me. And the man said, no, and he threw him into prison and said, you're going to be in prison until you paid every penny. And a servant of the king was watching, and he went and told the king, you know that servant you just freed? He just threw a dude in jail for 20 bucks. Didn't we just forgive him of a million? And the king said, yeah, bring him here. And he called him a wicked servant. And he said, I'm going to put you in prison till you pay every dime. Which one do you think got out first? Since we have received mercy, freely you have received, what does God call us to do? Freely give. I can't receive grace, forgiveness, and mercy without expressing grace forgiveness and mercy they don't deserve it i know neither did you but god gave it so how happy are the merciful for they they receive mercy go how happy are the merciful for they will obtain mercy and then he says blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god blessed are the pure in heart listen here's a concept for the pure in heart singleness of purpose The pure in heart is an attitude of singleness of purpose. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's not talking about a purity that's outward or or a purity that's ritual. It's talking about an inner purity of the singleness of heart that is after God with everything that's within them. Whatever it takes... I'm going to do whatever it takes so that I can lay hold of God. And what is it that they receive? They're so happy with this pureness of heart, this attitude of loving God with all your heart, for they shall see God. 
They see him. They're drawn into a more intimate relationship with God. Does anybody not want that? I don't want to have an intimate relationship with God where where I can know him. Philippians chapter 3 says that I might know him. The fellowship of his suffering being conformed unto his death. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, that we would be drawn into that close relationship with the Lord. Oh, how happy, oh, how content, oh, how filled with joy are the pure in heart who love God with all their heart. Yeah, but you know, I try to love God with all my heart, but I fail. Okay, that's good. What direction are you heading in? Are you heading in a direction toward loving God? Or are you heading in a direction toward breaking his heart? Which is it? Can't head in both directions at the same time. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed. Oh, how filled with contentment and joy are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Then he says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. It's, it's an incredible thing as we, as we think about this, as we consider it. The peacemaker, the world is at war with God. And all the while... God is trying to reconcile his enemies and make them his children. And he says, blessed, oh, how happy are the peacemakers. The peacemakers. The ones who understand that to be within the world or in love with the world is to be an enemy of God. And to be in love with God makes you at enmity with the world. The peacemakers are those who go around and help people reconcile, be reconciled to God. Isn't that a ministry that Paul says we have? A ministry of reconciliation? That's a whole concept of evangelism, reaching out to the lost, that they would be reconciled to God. Now those who at once were at war with God are at peace. For he himself has become our peace. Jesus Christ, blessed are the peacemaker. Oh, how happy, content, filled with joy <coughs> are those who recognize that to be focused upon the world is to be at war with the Lord. To be focused on the Lord is to be at war with the world. And there's no place in the middle. Oh, how happy are the peacemakers. For they themselves will be called the sons of God. That means we're bearing family resemblance. You bear a family resemblance? When people look at you, can they see the resemblance of your Father in heaven? <clears> or <throat> the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Well, now, man, I try, I try, but I keep messing up. Listen, what direction are you heading? Where are you headed? This life is a journey, right? Well, where are you going? Are you going toward Jesus Christ? Or are you going toward something else? Are you moving closer to him? Or are you moving further away from him? Because that's what he's looking for. That's what it means to be committed to the Lord. I'm going where he goes. And if he's not there, I don't want to be there. I want to be where he is. Where Jesus is. Where the Lord is. And he says... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, he says in verse 11, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you 
falsely, this is important, for my name's sake. He doesn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for being a knucklehead. (laughs) Doesn't say, blessed are you for being persecuted when you're rude, insensitive, unkind. No, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Because of your relationship with me, the world should hate you. If the world loves you, my color's not clear. Colors what we, we, we I used to wear in a motorcycle. I wore colors. I uh, prospected with a couple of, of uh, MCs, motorcycle clubs, ended up settling on one that was was pretty mellow, but guys were pretty serious about their colors because their color says who they are. One particular color that, that I was excited and happy to be a part of were, were called Soldiers for Jesus. Motorcycle club ministering to other bikers, they wore yellow and black, and across the back of their vest it says Soldiers for Jesus. Everybody knew that they were for real, on fire for Jesus Christ. This is who I am. Their colors were clear. You know, being a part of that MC meant that there were certain freedoms within the world that you shunned, that you turned away from. Why? The, the attitude of the club was, we want you to be clear. I'm not here to celebrate my freedom in sin. I'm here to celebrate my freedom in Christ. I'm not here to celebrate what I can dabble in, play in, weights I can toss around. I'm here to say, I want to be with everything within me moving toward Jesus Christ. And laying aside anything that holds me back from doing that. I want the color, my colors, to be clear. So when I'm wearing my colors, when I'm wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that He is evident in my life. And that's the guiding... Am I going to do this or not do this? Well, does it show Jesus Christ in my life? Yeah, cool, go for it. Nope, doesn't show Jesus at all. In fact, it shows poorly upon that. Then why are you doing it? Well, I'm free, brother. The Word says that I am free. Great. The Word also says not to exercise your freedom to cause someone else to fall. The Word also says that I'm not supposed to live for self, right? What makes me happy, I'm supposed to live for others. What's best for them? What's best for them? How can I help them? How can I touch them? Blessed are you when your colors are clear and they persecute you because you look like Jesus. Because you act like Him. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Literally, it means leap for joy. When's the last time you were persecuted and you just danced around the room because you were persecuted? Woohoo! Peter and John did that. You remember they got arrested and they they were beaten and they were thrashed and they were told, don't you walk out of here and preach the name of Jesus again. And the scripture says in the book of Acts chapter 4, I think that they left that place and rejoiced greatly that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. They were willing to make a stand, to move in that direction, to head toward the Lord Jesus Christ with all that they had. For verse 13 says, You are salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Listen, it describes 
our value, that we are precious. Why? Because in the ancient days, Roman soldiers actually used to get paid in salt. That's where the saying came from. Are you worth your salt? It spoke of the fact that it was precious. Salt was precious. It had value. We're to be salt, to have that preciousness. But beyond that, we're also called salt because it has a, a preservative, a preserving influence. It keeps things from rotting. The things, are things held from rotting because of your presence? We are salt. It speaks of our preciousness. It speaks of our preserving power. And finally, it speaks of our flavor. You ever had something that didn't have enough salt? What do we call that? That's bland. Man, I don't want my life to be bland. I want my life to be full of flavor. Mmm, that's good. Just the right amount of salt. He said, you're to be salt. You're to, you're to be seen in the world. There's to be able to tell you're different from everybody else. How then, he says, if salt loses its flavor, shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What good is salt that is not salty? No good. So let's be salty salt. Salt that has value. Salt that has flavor. Salt that preserves. We're to be salt. And then finally, we're to be the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? We are to be like him. We're to walk as he walked. Then we're also to reflect that light of Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt and light. He calls us to salt and light. Why? Because salt and light affects its environment. It affects its environment. We're walking with Jesus. We're trucking with Him. We're headed towards Him. Our colors are clear. We affect our environment. The people around us taste and see that the Lord is good by the lives that we live before Him. Amen? Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Hey, David, why don't you come up? I'm going to have uh, David close us out, close out with the word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we want to thank you for this wonderful, great group of people. Lord, we thank you for the the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. I ask that everyone in this room obey the Spirit when they're spoken to. Everyone knows that can feel that Spirit 
can feel you talking to them. And it's just a matter of obedience. Lord, I know as, as I was on my way to Boise the other day, you spoke to me. Said that I needed to lead the altar call for this service. I don't know how to do that. It's not my strength. I said no. It can't be me. And he just kept driving, said yes, I'm talking to you. Lord, I know you're speaking to many people in this church this morning. They've had hardships in their lives. They've had death. They've had sickness. They've had abuse. There's, there's sin. Lord, there's, there's families that's crumbling. Lord, you can bring it all up and put it on the table. And Lord, I'd, I'd ask that you just lift us all up in this closing. I'd ask that, that everybody just heed the word of God. If he asks you to get on your knees and pray, get on your knees. If he asks you to come forward, come forward. We have oil. We can anoint you with oil. James said that if you have sickness and need, need to be healed, to call the elders of the church, be anointed with oil and pray, and it should be healed. All you have to do is have faith. So, Lord, as we're closing out in songs this morning, I pray that you'll just bring those people forward. You know God's talking to you. Just come forward, ask for prayer. You can be silent. We'll pray for you. But Jesus, we just ask that you just bless this church. Fill it with the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.